Okay, we've recently had uh, a quiz night at London City Presbyterian Church. A quiz night, which some of us had to miss to put children to bed. Uh, but I tell you what, let's uh, carry on in that vein and let's start with a quiz question. All right, so hands on buzzers. We're studying First Peter. So here's the question. What is the purpose of this book? By now, we've gone through quite a bit of it. I'm sure you've read First Peter a few times. So why is this apostle writing this letter? How would you answer that question? What's, what's the purpose of First Peter? Lots of different directions we could go under. We could say that what he's doing is exhorting Christians to persevere. We could say that he's preparing Christians for a life of suffering. That's definitely true. But what about this? That at least part of the reason that Peter's writing this letter is to teach us and to teach Christians how to live well in society. That's certainly a prominent feature of First Peter, isn't it? That he's teaching all believers everywhere how to behave, how to, you know, maintain a God-fearing life, but also the same time to engage meaningfully in this pagan and hostile world. Okay. Well, as we continue in this letter this morning, it's to that really prominent theme uh, that we must turn. And as you and I to have our lives changed just now, as lockdown begins to ease, when you think about it, what better subject could we think about, could we turn to than this? How Christians can engage well with our society and for the glory and honour of our God. Okay, so the Christian and society. Right, uh, tell you what, if you've got a Bible, please have it open there. And uh, let's, let's get our teeth into this portion of scripture. The first thing that I want us to think about is this. I want us to think about the principle of sojourning. Okay, the principle of sojourning. Okay, now as we turn to this uh, section of scripture, can I just ask you, what is it that strikes you about how Peter begins this portion of God's word? Like, I'll, I'll bring it up there. Do you see it? What does he, how does he begin it? Beloved, I urge you. What, what do, you, do you think about that? What strikes you? You just say back to me, you say, well, it's, it's, it's warm, isn't it? It's kind of caring. We've seen previously how God loves these people. Now we're seeing that the apostle loves them as well. I'm with you. Totally fine. Great. Bang on. It's loving. Anything else about that? Beloved, I urge you. Anything else? Well, if you've been at LCPC for any uh, length of time at all, perhaps you'll remember what we saw when we looked at the, the Old Testament book of Genesis. Do you remember that in Genesis... What the author does is he uses a particular phrase to mark out and divide the book of Genesis. Do you remember that? That when you're reading the book of Genesis and you read this phrase, these are the generations of whoever, what do you know? You know that you have just moved into a new section of that book. Do you remember? Well, if you do, or even if you don't, you've got to understand that's what's happening here in First Peter. That in this letter, when you encounter the idea of glory, and it, that is in conjunction with the word beloved, what you know is that you have transitioned or are transitioning into a different section of this letter. I'll show you. Look, you've got it here in chapter 2, glory and beloved. And then look at this in chapter 4. You've also got the idea of glory and beloved. 
Okay, so you're with me, uh, we're into a new section, and we're actually, at th- this morning, in this sermon, transitioning into the main body of this letter. You with me? Yeah, fine, good, great. Now maybe you'll recall from last week that Peter, in this letter, is determined that Christians have a proper understanding of their identity. Do you remember that from last week? You had uh, the Christians to, to think of themselves as part of something bigger, the church, the, the temple, the, the holy priesthood. Do you remember? Well, in a way, that kind of theme uh, continues here. Because before Peter gets to exactly how it is that we are to engage with this pagan society, what Peter does is give us a principle here that should inform our self-understanding. So, how are you to view yourself as a Christian when you're thinking about society? Look at verse 11 with me. Look at these words. What does he say? He says, Beloved, I urge you, how do we think of ourselves? I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now we've all heard that word exile before already in this book, right back at the beginning of the letter, but here the emphasis is slightly different. So I want you to listen to me and to to get this and to grasp it and, and drink it in. So these words, sojourner, exile, they are to be taken together and they give us the idea of, quite simply, a foreigner in a land. So is everyone with me? We're not to interpret sojourner one way and alien the other or exile the other. We take them together and it's the idea of a, a resident, a temporary, but maybe a, a slightly more long-term inhabitant of a land, a stranger, a foreigner. You're with me, right? But even if you're not, maybe an application, and rather an illustration, will help us at the moment. So let's just think about the British Empire for a second, maybe not what we all love to think about, but let's do it. The British Empire. So you know what it would have been like, I don't know, 100 years ago. You would have had, maybe even longer than that, but you would have had uh, these ambassadors sent out from, from Great Britain to different parts of the world. And these would be rather posh men, well-to-do, and they would have a great moustache, and they'd be sent off to some, oh, primitive part of the world as an ambassador. And let's just say that this chap was sent out as an ambassador for two years. My question is, how is he going to live in that far-off land? Well, if he's doing things proper, he's going to love the people and he's going to serve the people and so forth, but he's there for two years, right? He is a sojourner, so he's not going to immerse himself in that culture for that length of time, is he? Like, he's not going to adopt uh, the religious practices. He's not necessarily even going to dress like them. He's not going to adopt their morality, their ethics, their principles or practices, their customs, is he? Why not? Because he's a sojourner. He is uh, a stranger in that land for a certain length of time. And if you follow that and picture that, surely you get First Peter. That's what he's calling for. And not just from those first century Christians, but from you. Now, please hear this. The idea is not just that we have to accept that our citizenship is primarily in heaven. That's not so much the point here. The point is that that heavenly citizenship should actually affect the way that we behave, the way that we conduct ourselves in our present culture. We are sojourners. And so... Friends, I have to ask you, as you consider your life and you consider what God's word is saying to you today, 
Can you say that you're living as an outsider in our society? Is that what you are? Or could it be actually that with you and with me, we are so firmly established and firmly rooted in our culture that we have adopted way too many of the practices, way too much of the morality of the society around us? In light of First Peter chapter 2, perhaps we need to reorientate our self-understanding. Who are you? Who are you as a Christian? You are a sojourner and you are called to live like that. So we see the principle of sojourning. Secondly, let's move on quickly. Secondly, let's consider the prohibition of surrendering. The prohibition of surrendering. Okay, so we know that these verses, they start a new section, the main body of the letter. But what's next? Well, in order to provide a platform or a foundation for how we can engage with society, what Peter does is actually turn the lens toward you, to me, and to the idea of self-control as the thing for engaging with society. Look at verse 11. So we've got, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now listen, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Okay, what's the, if we're going to get to grips with this in any way, shape or form, what's the obvious thing that we have to establish here? If we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, what do you need to know? We need to know, uh, well, okay, what, what do you mean by the passions of the flesh? It doesn't exactly spell it out for us. Look, let me turn that to you. You're sitting there watching this. What do you think Peter has in view by the passions of the flesh? I would suggest this, that most of us watching and thinking about this text just now, most of us think about sexual immorality. Isn't that right? I mean, naturally, if you've got the words, think about it, the word passion and the word flesh uh, together, passion, we think about sexual immorality. Now, if you're thinking along those lines, I want to say to you, well, yeah, you're bang on. I mean, you can almost hear First Thessalonians 4 in the background, abstain from sexual immorality. Definitely that is in view here, but it is not all. And because Peter's thinking here is so much in line with the Apostle Paul's, what I think we need to do, what I think would really help us, is if we had Galatians chapter 5 in mind here. So, here it is. Now here, Paul, do you see what he does? He uses the same idea of the flesh, or sarx as it is in Greek. And he provides a list. Do you notice it? He doesn't just say works of the flesh or passions of the flesh. He actually provides 15 examples. And isn't it interesting if you look at it? Because this list doesn't just include action. So it's not just immorality or drunkenness. But look at it. This is a list that includes uh, emotions. So passions of the flesh, these things are enmity and jealousy and anger as well. Now, back to our text in Peter. What is it that Peter is saying to you about all of these passions of the flesh? Did you see the word? What is the word? He says to you, abstain, abstain from, from these things. So you hear the call of God very clearly. Don't you? Surely it is this, that this text is calling for a zero tolerance attitude towards sin. You and I are to resist, renounce, we are to refuse these sinful passions that kind of bubble up in our lives. 
Now, let me just speak really candidly, really uh, uh, frankly for a moment. I've, I've got a fear about this. Here, here it is. I reckon that if we are you know, open to lots of expository preaching, I reckon that phrases like this, sections of scripture like this, calling for holy living, you know, sections like be holy, I am holy, and so forth, we, the fear is that these things are so familiar to us that we can, because of our sin, become desensitised to them, numb to them, and calls for holiness and righteousness, eventually in the Christian life, because of our sin, they can just kind of wash over us. And I wonder if, if that isn't, it's true for you, if it's true in any way, shape or form, this is what I think you need to do. I think you, right now, what you need to do is pay attention to what Peter goes on to say and the metaphor that he uses. So just have a look at verse 11 with me. What are these desires doing in, in, in your life? Read it. They, he says, abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Friends, isn't that something? I mean, doesn't that bring home to you how serious this is? We're learning here that all Christians, all believers, right now at this moment in time, that we are in the midst of a deadly conflict. That in the Christian life, we're not just fighting Satan, we're not just fighting society, we're actually fighting ourselves. That these passions are welling up and what they're trying to do in our lives, they're trying to conquer us. It's a war. They're trying to defeat us. They're trying to destroy our eternity even. And I think this is so, so solemn and so important that what we need to do is just think for a moment about some practical application. So this week, what do you know? You know that there are going to be passions of the flesh trying to attack you. So how about these three strategies for war? Will you follow these just really briefly? First one is this. We must reflect. Does does that sound a bit weird? Well, you know what you know. Like, you know that an army commander, if he's going into battle, what's he going to do? He wants to know as much about the opposition as possible. But then what does he do? He inspects his own troops. How's the eastern flank going? The western flank? Are there any holes in the defensive line? Do you not need to do that? This week we need to reflect what areas of my life are weaknesses to attack and what passions, what passions presently, as I live just now, what passions are most likely to attack? We, we, we reflect. Second thing we must do is we must read Again, that might sound a little bit weird, but come on, any self-respecting army general is going to be well-versed in military strategy. And when I say read, of course I mean that we've got to read it in books, and books about how to defeat sin. Like There's a million books from Puritan stuff right through to contemporary literature. There's loads of it out there. Yes, I mean read books, but much more than that. Surely we need to read the Bible. We need to study scripture. There is the most simple formula in the Christian life, isn't there? Surely it's this. The more we immerse ourselves in God's word, the more that we truly, properly, prayerfully study scripture, the less we will succumb to these wicked temptations. So we reflect, we read the third strategy is we must request you. Imagine this. 
Okay, imagine an army general on the hill overlooking the battle and he sees his troops being annihilated, being defeated and, listen, this army general knows that he has a plethora of reinforcements in the rear. He's got all these well-armed, well-trained troops that he could summon in and this general doesn't do it. What would you think? You would think he was mad or evil. And yet, isn't that what we are guilty of as well? You think about the beginning of this letter. What, what, what do we learn? God has called you. We are foreknown by God, chosen by God. There's the sprinkling, the, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. But we were called in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit of God. Do you not understand, Christian friend? You have the most powerful ally available to you in this war. Friends, we must request God's help so that we can, even today, even tomorrow, even this week, abstain from the passions of the flesh we're seeking to conquer and to kill, to destroy uh, the people of God. So uh, we see this uh, principle of sojourning, we see the prohibition of surrendering. Third thing we've got to notice though is the persuading of the suspicious. The persuading of the suspicious. Okay, so we've seen uh, the foundation, the platform that has to be built for our engagement with society. What's the foundation? Uh, You and I have to seek to be self-controlled. But now that platform's built. So as we turn towards our society, how do we act? As we turn towards our culture, what do we do? Well, as we go into verse 12 now, what Peter does here, he turns from that sort of negative prohibition, abstain from, and he turns to a much more positive and exact command. But actually what I want you to think about is the extent... (laughs) Of the call that Peter makes on your life, the extent of it here. Because if I bring up verse 12 there, look, you can see that it is our behaviour in society. Because he talks about our conduct among the Gentiles and the pagans. But wait a minute, what, wait, look at it. What is the standard expected of us? Well, you see that word uh, there, the word honourable, that actually comes from the Greek word for beautiful. <laughs> you see what I mean about the, the extent of the call here? Like, how is it that you are supposed to live amongst your society, amongst your unbelieving neighbours and so forth? Peter's calling for a beautiful life, right? He's calling for an exemplary life, a life full of goodness and virtuous activity, right? Now, what do you think? You know, if you're anything like me, immediately you're, you're thinking about how far you, you fall and what high bar this is. But this is what I want you to think about. The fact that because lockdown is easing just now and our lives are getting back up to speed a little bit, what's God doing? Because lockdown is lifting. God's giving you a new start with society. Like a new chapter in our engagement with our culture is beginning. And I firmly believe that if we only grasp what Peter says here about the purpose of our good works, 
I firmly believe if we grasp it, then we're going to be fired up. Like, we're going to be reinvigorated for to, to go out into this world and live a beautiful life in society. So what am I talking about? Well, look again, look. Look at verse 12, and what I want you to do, because I'm going to ask you about it, what I want you to do is think about what Peter goes on to say. What does he go on to say? Verse 12, let's read it. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that, what? When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now I'm going to read that back to you. I'm going to ask you, what do you notice about that? So he's saying, you know, live beautifully. Why? So that when they speak evil, or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and, and glorify. What do you notice? The thing you notice, definitely, don't you, the expectation of opposition. Like he doesn't say, if people speak against you as evildoers, he says, when they do that, there's the expectation that just as the early Christians faced all manner of accusations, cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper, incest because they had a Christian family, the same thing's going to happen to the church today. There's the expectation of opposition. But what else did you notice? Did you not see it? Did you not notice the consequence of our good works? Like, after all, what does Peter say here? Peter says that if we live this virtuous life, God can use it not just to... I think, silence those people who are suspicious of Christianity. But God can use our good deeds to bring forth honour, glory to his name. (laughs) That's exciting, isn't it? That's a wonderful reality. But I do think so many people get kind of waylaid or lost in the woods. Because Peter talks here about glory coming to God on the day of visitation. So many people get confused about that. Does this mean that on the day of judgment, these opponents to Christianity will be forced in the light of our good deeds to, to, to bring some honour to God? But no, it doesn't mean that. It's straightforward. Listen, in the New Testament, more often than not, those who glorify God are people who believe. Do you not see what Peter is saying? It's precious and it's exciting for the Christian church. He's saying that if we act beautifully, and you know what that means, that means, you know, trying to have fun without excess alcohol and loving our children and disciplining our children, conducting ourselves well with integrity in the workplace. If we live like that, what's God saying? God can use that to prompt saving faith. Now you remember last week, don't you? That in conjunction with us proclaiming the excellencies of God, if we will only live with integrity, God can use that to point unbelieving people to the Lord Jesus Christ. I firmly believe that this here should prompt discussion. You know, discussion in our church, discussion in your home, with your household, with your Christian friends, with your spouse, with your family. We should ask each other, are we really Conducting ourselves well in society? Are we living openly? Can people see good deeds in our lives? And if not, how can we change? What more can we do to conduct ourselves amongst the pagans honourably? And why? For the glory of our God. So, we've seen... The principle of sojourning. We have seen the prohibition of surrendering. We have seen the persuading of the suspicious. And then we close with this. The positioning of this section. The positioning of the section. Because if you... 
been a Christian for any length of time at all, I think you know the default setting that we can fall and slip into when we read portions of scripture like this. You know what I'm going to say? When we read portions of scripture, what calls for holiness, you and I, by our sin, can very quickly fall into a works-based righteousness, can't we? Where we read this section or sections like it, and we interpret that section of scripture to mean, ah, yes, we must conduct ourselves with honour, we must resist sinful temptation in order to earn the favour of God, in order to ensure God is on our side. Well, I want to uh, close with the most simplistic, I guess, or simple, yet important truth. And it is this. Listen to me and do not think I'm mad. Ready? I want to say to you, remind you, First Peter 2 comes after and not before First Peter chapter 1. You may be thinking mad. Hear it again. Chapter 2 of First Peter, it comes after and not before chapter 1. You see what I'm getting at? I really hope you do. Peter does not begin this wonderful epistle, this wonderful letter. He doesn't begin saying, ah, this is how you earn favour with God. This is how you receive salvation. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honourable. Resists sin. No, he doesn't, does he? He begins his letter with God's work in us. He begins with our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and it's only then that he makes this appeal for holiness. You see it, don't you? He begins with the gospel and it is only then when that is laid out before us does he appeal for a virtuous life in response to that good news. And so I really am going to end by simply reminding you of what we have seen, reminding you of what Peter has told us about the only way to be made right with God. What is that? You remember what he said? We are enslaved by sin. Isn't that right? Peter's talked about a price that has to be paid to free us, to make us right with God. We are enslaved and chained. And so I'm going to ask you, what is the price? How have we been redeemed? What did he say? Did he say we have been redeemed by our beautiful life? Or did he say you will be redeemed if you resist the passions of the flesh? No, he didn't. How have we been redeemed? Not even by silver and gold. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made right with God through that lamb without spot and blemish. That is the way to God. Friends, it is only through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that we are set free. And in him, what do we have? Oh, remember the exalted language. We are born again to live in hope. We receive an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. We are given grace that even the angels long to look into. And we are being built up together to house the presence of God forevermore. I think if you're a Christian and you read this section of scripture in order and properly, I reckon I know what you want to do right now. You want to praise God, but you want to obey verses 11 and 12. Christian friend, I exhort you this week, seek to resist the passions of the flesh. Seek to, to live honourably 
in this society. Why? So that other people around us will see what has been done for us, what has been done for us, that though we do not deserve it, we have been gifted everlasting life, gifted eternal salvation. And by whom? By the one that Peter will go on to call the God of all grace. Friends, let's bow our heads. Let's praise God. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we want to confess our sin so much as we do not resist and abstain from sinful desire and sinful passions of the flesh as we ought. Also, Lord God, we don't seek to keep our uh, conduct honourable amongst the Gentiles. And we do ask, Lord God, that you would forgive us. We thank you that Christ, Jesus, our Saviour, has lived perfectly, resisting sin, but also acting beautifully, the beautiful life lived by Jesus. We thank you that he has earned heaven, he has earned salvation for us. And we want to praise you and we want to ask you, help us to live this life that brings honour and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen.